welcome to The Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Chuck Greaves had the amazing experience of having his first two novels placed first and second in an international new writers competition that attracted 600 entries. So it's perhaps not surprising that the former LA trial lawyer hasn't looked back since. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Chuck talks about his popular Jack McTaggart legal thriller series as well as the literary and historic crime fiction that's winning him top awards and a growing audience. And we've got three hard to find paperback copies of one of the McTaggart books, Green Eyed Lady, number two in the series, as a holiday giveaway for three lucky readers. Best-selling author Douglas Preston called it the wickedest read of the year, and I'm sure the lucky winners will agree with that assessment. Details of how to enter the contest can be found on the Joys of Binge Reading website or the Binge Reading Facebook page. Entries close May 16, so be in now. We'll get to Chuck in just a minute, but in the meantime, just a reminder... The show notes for this episode can be found on the website along with the details of that great contest at thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Chuck's books and website as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now here's Chuck. Hello there Chuck and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hello Jenny, thank you for having me. Look, you've enjoyed a very full career as an L.A. trial lawyer before turning your hand to fiction. And I'm just wondering, how did that transition come about? Was there some sort of catalyst that made you think, I just must try my hand at writing a novel? Yeah, the catalyst was called a midlife crisis. (laughs) (laughs) And what happened was um, I turned 50. Uh, I'd been at my same law firm uh, where I was a partner for 25 years. And I just thought to myself, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Uh, and um, I'd always wanted to write. I'd always been a reader. And I thought of something I wanted to try my hand at. And I always had this notion that I wanted to live more than one life on this earth. Uh, and I'd been on a particular trajectory for, you know, 50 years. And I thought I'd try something completely different. And so I... I resigned my law firm partnership. My wife did the same. She's also a lawyer. And we pulled up stakes. We left L.A. We moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I sat and started writing a novel. Fantastic. Just like that. That's amazing. So now you've got two writing names that you work under. Chuck Greaves has written three much-praised books in the Jack McTaggart crime series. And then you've also got literary and historical fiction that you write under the name of C. Joseph Greaves. So I guess those two names are just simply to to differentiate those two different genres, are they? 
Yeah, so I, there's a bit of a backstory to that, which I'll be happy to tell you. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm in Santa Fe now. The year is 2006, and I'm, as I said, writing this first novel, which was my first Jack McTaggart novel. It was called Hush Money. Uh, and it took me about two years to write. I was really teaching myself how to write a novel. And when it was finished, I did what all um, new novelists do, which is to try to find a literary agent in New York. And so I sent uh, query letters to various agents in New York, and I received uh, form rejection letters back. <laughs> and uh, that I probably sent out 30 letters. I probably got back 30 rejections. In the meantime, I had finished that novel, and I'd started on my second novel. And the second novel I wrote was something completely different than the first-person, sort of sunny, humorous uh lawyer detective novel which was the first novel hush money the second novel was was based on a true crime uh that happened uh in the u.s in the 1930s it was a case i just stumbled upon and interested me and i did a lot of research into and so that book was called hard twisted and it was a very different book third person very dark um very gritty uh, much more literary and uh, by 2000 and Ten, I had written two novels. I was now four years into this experiment, uh, but I still had no agent and no publisher. And so what I did was I entered both of my manuscripts in a writing contest. It was called the Southwest Writers International Writing Contest. And the year that I entered, there were 680 uh, entries in the contest. And to make a long story short, Hard Twisted came in second, and Hush Money came in first. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So as a result of that, uh, I suddenly had a number of um, agents contacting me, offering to represent me. Uh, and I ended up signing with uh, the David Black Agency in New York. And um, we sold the first mystery novel, Hush Money, to St. Martin's Minotaur in a multi-book deal. And then we sold the standalone uh, gritty historical novel to Bloomsbury. Um, but they didn't want to use the name Chuck Greaves, which I used on the first novel, uh, because they were such radically different novels. They didn't want there to be reader confusion. So um, we, you know, no, I didn't want to use a a, uh, a pen name, and if the mystery writing didn't work out, I'd end up being, you know, Joe Schwartz for the rest of my life. So we reached a compromise where we used variations of my name. So that's a long way of saying that my mystery novels are written by Chuck Greaves. And my other non-mystery novels are written under the name C. Joseph Graves. Uh, but how remarkable that? that you could get first and second like that after having really not been able to stimulate much interest. It, it just shows you they probably didn't even really read the things. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's a really funny business. It's hard to break into, and there's a, there's a big element of luck to it. Um, mm. I, I think there are a lot of, the world is full of really talented writers who never get their break. And the world is full of really mediocre novels who are, are quite successful. That's just the way it is. Yeah, yeah. So Jack is a is a lovely character. He's irrepressible. He's sort of a bit roguish and rough around the edges. It might scorn the legal formalities a bit, but he's kind of got a heart of gold. I had the feeling when I was reading it, it's almost like a wish fulfillment thing that you wished that law would enable guys like Jack to make a living, but perhaps it doesn't. Do, is there any sort of truth in that suspicion? 
<laughs> well, you know, I, I think the Jack McTaggart character is probably my fantasy self, you know? Yeah. Except that Jack, except Jack is smarter than me, funnier than me, and better looking than me. But other than that, uh, <laughs> there, there, there's a bit of me in there for sure. Um, in the first novel, I'm not sure which one you read, but Hush Money was the first novel. I think and, I read um, all of them, actually, because I like them oh, so much. Yeah. Oh, lovely. Thank you. Uh, well, the first novel takes place, he's a... He's a uh, not a partner. He, he's he's sort of being um, uh, tested for partnership uh, at this at this white shoe law firm in Pasadena, California. So that kind of describes the law firm I worked at. Uh, the, the the fictional law firm was called Henley Hargrove. Uh, the real law firm I worked at was called Han and Han in Pasadena. So I sort of used my old law firm, uh, you know, as a model for uh, the setting. And, you know, to a certain extent, Jack is me. I, I find that writing the Jack McTaggart novels uh, comes quite naturally to me. Uh, writing in the first person and writing at that sort of breezy voice comes quite naturally to me. Uh, whereas when I write the other novels in the third person and trying to be more literary, I really have to work at it. Um, so I'd much rather just spend all my days writing the McTaggart novels, but I also have this this notion that I want to be a serious novelist and, you know, write the great American novel. So I try to do that uh, when I'm not doing Jack. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, Jack is about to become a four-book series, I think. And one of the things I enjoyed about the books is that each one, they have quite an interesting backdrop, a kind of um, environment that the story takes place in. And you get quite a lot of background information about those Environments, whether it's show jumping or an upmarket winery or political campaigning, there's quite a lot of extra information that comes with the action and the characterisation. And I wondered if you really did yourself have personal understanding and connections with those worlds before you wrote about them, or whether you had to start from scratch and, and um, research them. Uh, the answer is it was the former. So, so the conceit there is that I try to take Jack and, and plunk him into uh, an alien environment and make him a fish out of water. Because Jack is a real blue-collar guy. He didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Mm. Um, but he, he finds himself in, in these um, very sort of high-end settings, as you said, in the world of equestrian show jumping or in the world of Napa Valley winemaking. Uh, and... As an outsider, he can kind of make fun of of, uh, of those worlds a little bit. Uh, but in, in, as far as I'm concerned as a writer, I, I am writing sort of what I know. So, for example, I did belong to a, an English writing club in Los Angeles uh, called the Flint Ridge Run Club. And I am a kind of a wine guy. I, I you know, did a lot of wine tourism. And, in fact, now I, I actually own a vineyard right now. Um, so um, those are worlds that I knew. And... Politics. I, I was always interested in politics, and when in Pasadena, uh, I was the um, the campaign uh, treasurer and campaign advisor for a friend who who ran for city council successfully. So I had some exposure to all those worlds, and I thought they were all interesting enough that it would they'd make uh, good settings for Jack, and um, Jack would be a good foil for the characters you might be in those types of settings. Yeah. Yeah. So you've already explained a little bit about how your trial law experience fed into the books. I think I have seen um, reference to a particular case with the, um, the wine story, the Napa Family Wine Company, 
You did have a case yourself that was relevant to that plot line, didn't you? Uh, sort of. At the beginning of that book, there's, there's a story. It's not the main story in the book, but it, it's sort of Jack's entry into the, uh, into the case. And it's a case in which uh, a wealthy person dies and leaves behind two wives, okay? Yeah. And um, in the book, one of those wives, you know, the person who dies is a film executive and, he, uh, you know, a media mogul, and he leaves behind a wife and a mistress, both of whom claim to be the wife. And the mistress sues the wife for half of, uh, half of the decedent's estate. And that's how Jack gets into uh, the whole Napa Valley scene. I had a, a, a case just like that. I had a, a prominent citizen uh, client who passed away and left behind two wives. And uh, that was quite an interesting case, and I thought that would be a, a fun way to sort of kick the book off. So, yes, I have used actual um, cases from my practice not too often and never as the main storyline, but I've used them. I had a very interesting uh Law practice. I represented uh, some interesting people, including for ten years. I represented uh, Richard Pryor, the comedian, and oh. uh, we did a lot of fun stuff together. And um, yeah, there's a lot of grist for the mill there. That's great. But you've taken a, a, a sort of right turn, or maybe it's a left turn, with your most recent book, Church of the Graveyard Saints, because it's quite a departure from the Jack McTaggart crime series and possibly also from the other historical crime that you've been doing. You describe it as part eco-thriller, part romance and it's upmarket commercial fiction. So tell us about Church of the Graveyard Saints. Uh, yeah, so uh, even though I wrote my first five novels while living in uh, Santa Fe, I moved to uh, southwestern Colorado in 2012, my wife and I did, and we bought a ranch here, and like I mentioned, a vineyard, and um, each of my books, we moved in January of 2012, and the first Jack book, Hush Money, came out in, in June of 2012, so all five of the books I'd already written came out while I was living in this new community and getting to know my new neighbors and whatnot, and they were quite interested in the process. And as each new book would come out, what they'd say to me is, gee, when are you going to write about here? Uh, and, uh, you know, by the time the fifth book came out, I had no more excuses left, so I, I thought I'm going to write a, about here. Uh, and so I looked at, at this setting where I live here in this beautiful country, uh, beautiful Red Rock country in, uh, in southwestern Colorado. And um, there are certain conflicts that exist here, uh, primarily uh, of an ecological nature. I live in a place called McElmo Canyon, which is near the border with, with Utah. It's near a place called the Four Corners in, 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 uh, in the American Southwest. And um, there's two interesting things about McElmo Canyon. Uh, it's the southern boundary of, a, of a, what we call a national monument. It's not a national park, but it's a, a scaled-down version of a national park. And it's called the Canyons of the Ancients National Monument. And it's where the ancestral Puebloan people um, lived uh, about a thousand years ago. And quite a few archaeological sites uh, in and around uh, where I live. And the two most notable things about the monument are, number one, 
Uh, it's said to have the densest concentration of archaeological sites anywhere in America. Um, there are estimated to be 30,000 ancestral Puebloan cliff dwellings and other sites wow. yeah. uh, in, the, uh, in the monument. The mm. other uh, notable thing about the monument is it sits on top of what's called the McElmo Dome, which is the largest and purest CO2 repository in the world. Uh, so the extractive industry, the oil and gas industry, uh, wants to drill wells here and pump CO2 out of the ground here, and they send it in pipelines down to Texas and Oklahoma and use it uh, to uh, stimulate oil production uh, down there. Uh, so there is this inherent tension that happens here between the extractive industries, which want to uh, drill uh, and put in pipelines and compressor stations and roads and all those good things, uh, and the environmental community and the archaeological community that wants to preserve the natural beauty and the archaeological resources around here. So that that was like a natural uh, uh, tension uh, that existed yeah. in the area. Yeah. I thought, you know, um, conflict is what is what drives compelling fiction. Mm. And so I thought that was a good uh, baseline conflict around which to build a novel. So the novel I wrote is called Church of the Graveyard Saints. And um, I liken it to a uh, to a Shakespearean tragedy where you have the capulets of resource extraction and the Montagues of environmental conservation butting heads in the background. But in the foreground, there is a love story, a love triangle uh, between a young woman from this community who leaves, go to California and comes back and returns to her old hometown only to find that the oil and gas industry is encroaching upon her family's ranching heritage. And that's another conflict. Uh, and the story just builds from there. And you've got a, a new publisher for that one, Tory Press, I understand, that a specialist environmental publishing house. That I, I have spoken to other authors who are published by Tory Press, and they, they just sing their praises very highly. Yeah, Tory House, it was, it was a, a departure for me also because the previous five novels had been with, um, you know, major publishing houses. And Tory House is a smaller press. They're based out of Salt Lake City, um, Utah, and they're a nonprofit, and their specialty is environmental literature. Uh, and um, the book, you know, was right in their wheelhouse. It was set in the four corners. Uh, it has major environmental themes to it. And uh, I know you spoke with um, Scott Graham. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, actually, I actually met the publishers at one of Scott's events. I went to uh, a local bookstore where Scott was speaking, and I struck up a conversation uh, with Mark Bailey, who's one of the owners of Tory House Press. And he said, you know, what are you working on these days? And I told him. And he said, hey, that's, that's, that's what we do. You know, can we take a look at the manuscript? So I said, sure. I, and I sent them the manuscript, and they very much wanted to publish it. And that's how I ended up with Tory House. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, we can't leave talking about your individual books without mentioning Lucky and Tom, because... Number one, it was chosen as a Wall Street Journal, one of the best books of 2015. And in that one, you've turned into a novel, a most couple and controversial courtroom clash between a powerful mobster, Lucky Luciano, and a special prosecutor. I gather that this was based on a cache of newly discovered documents, and I was curious as to how you got your hands on those or how that came about. 
Yeah, that's a good story also. Uh, so I mentioned that I belong to this uh, riding club in, in California called the Flint Ridge Riding Club. And um, one day, I was having lunch at Flint Ridge after riding uh, with some friends, some members there. And a young woman named Cece Levy, um, whose father had been a very prominent trial lawyer in New York back in the 1930s and 40s, uh, Cece uh, told me that uh, when her father died in 1977, uh, she had uh, taken all of his uh, office files, his file cabinets, and put them into storage. And they'd been in storage in a barn in upstate New York uh, for the past, I don't know, 30-some years. And I said, Cece, would you mind if I went back and looked at those files? Because I knew her father had defended the famous mobster Lucky Luciano in one of the most famous criminal trials of the century. Uh, Lucky Luciano had been prosecuted in 1936 by Thomas Dewey. Thomas Dewey, because of that case, became quite famous. He became the district attorney of New York. He became the governor of New York, and he almost became president of the United States. You may have seen a famous picture of our president, Harry Truman, holding up a newspaper that says, Dewey beats Truman. Uh, the Dewey in that headline is Thomas Dewey. So he was a uh-huh. famous lawyer who, who almost became president. But he was the prosecutor in the case. And Cece's father was the defense lawyer. So I, I, she said, sure, go ahead. So I jumped on a plane, flew back to New York from California, uh, picked up my brother. We drove to upstate New York. We found the barn. Inside the barn with all these old tractors and equipment was uh, a tarp. Under the tarp were 15 rusting file cabinets. And we spent the whole day going through the file cabinets until we found, believe it or not, uh, George Morton Levy's uh, defense file from the case of People versus Charles Luciano. So I had possession of these documents that nobody in the world had ever seen before. How amazing. Uh, yeah, and I thought I, I really, oh, if I ever if I ever become a writer, which I had hoped to do, I'm going to write this, you know, someday. So that was my fifth novel, uh, and it was it was one of the standalone novels from Bloomsbury. It was um, I told the story from four different points of view uh, in alternating chapters. So I had uh, the Lucky Luciano character, I had the Thomas Dewey character. I had the George Morton Levy character, the defense lawyer, and I had a, a star witness in the case was a prostitute named Cokie Flo Brown, and she was my fourth point of view character. So I told the story through their four alternating points of view, and, and, and the story begins in 1914, takes you through the Roaring Twenties, into the Great Depression, it builds up to the, the trial. And then for the trial, I actually used uh, snippets of transcript from the actual trial, uh, in telling the story. It, it's quite a fascinating story. Fascinating indeed, and I gather that it really uh, uh, lays bare the fact that some of the sinners may be saints and some of the heroes may prove to be the biggest sinners of all, and that in itself is is just a, a feast for a novelist, isn't it? Yeah, you know, um, reasonable minds can differ about this, but, but the result of my research, and again, I had access to documents that other people never had, my conclusion was that Lucky Luciano got railroaded, uh, and that Dewey really crossed a lot of ethical lines in prosecuting Luciano. Uh, the main one being that <laughs> they, they prosecuted him for prostitution, even though he was he was like the godfather, he was the head of organized crime in America. But they they used as their way to get him 
uh, prostitution in New York State. And what Thomas Dewey did was he was the special prosecutor appointed to prosecute uh, organized crime. He arrested every prostitute in Manhattan, and he held them all in jail. And he held them there for months at a time. And if they agreed to cooperate with him and, and tell him what he wanted to hear, then he left them out of jail and put them up in swank hotels and took them and wined them and dined them. But they wouldn't uh, cooperate. They stayed in jail. So eventually he had a handful of prostitutes who, would, who were willing to testify that Luciano was the guy behind the prostitution ring. And that was what the trial was all about. It was about prostitution. They put uh, uh, Luciano on trial with a bunch of pimps and, uh, and, uh, and thugs. And uh, they made him out to be the head of the prostitution ring. And uh, they dirted him up with all those other characters during the trial. And the jury convicted him. Yeah, it's sort of probably he deserved conviction, but not under under that. Not exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he he was a crook, but he wasn't. He probably wasn't that crook. <laughs> That's right. Look, one of the favorite questions that Goodreads likes to ask authors is that one about: Is there a mystery in your own life that would provide plot for a book? And I must admit that I, I noticed that you had been asked that question and you had the most fascinating answer. Can you tell us about that? Because it's well, tell me what it was. To, I, I, I oh, want to be fascinated. <laughs> well, it was to do with Hard Twisted and two skulls oh. that you found when you were hiking yeah. one day. Yeah, yeah. So that was a Yeah, so, all right. So uh, the year's 1993. And uh, I was still a lawyer in Los Angeles, as was my wife, and we were on vacation. We came out here to the Four Corners, to southern Utah, where we now live, almost. Um, but at that time, I'd never been there before. I'd never been to that beautiful Red Rock country that we have in southeastern Utah. And we met some friends from Colorado, and we stayed at a very remote bed and breakfast in a place called Valley of the Gods, Utah. And we were out hiking one day. This was in November uh, of 1993, and we were returning to the car, and it just started to snow. So um, you know how when the snow starts to fall, things all get hushed. Uh, and yes. we were walking along, yeah. and we stumbled upon two human skulls on the ground. And I kid you not, we bent down and picked them up, and as soon as we picked them up, a thunderclap rolled down the canyon and shook the ground under our feet. And it was just one of those wow moments, you know, in your life. Yeah. Uh, so the mystery was, you know, whose skulls were these? How did they get here? Um, we were put in touch with a woman who ran the trading post in a place called Mexican Hat, Utah, which was the nearest town. This is a very remote, uh, desolate area. And um, a woman there named Doris Valley uh, had written a little history about the, the area, a little pamphlet of a book uh, she'd self-published. And in that pamphlet, she devoted a chapter, which was probably four pages long, to a notorious double murder that had happened in Johns Canyon. And she believed that those skulls, and by the way, she said, you are not the first people to find those skulls. Those are, are Indian skulls, either Navajo or, or Ute or Paiute Indian skulls. Um, uh, but, but I believe that those skulls are connected to the double murder because I think the murderer, who was a, a man named Clint Palmer, uh, killed two Navajos in order to get the sheep herding job, which he was holding down at the time that he committed the double murder. So, the, so we went back to L.A. and it was a fascinating story, and it piqued our curiosity. And I spent a number of years. This was, you know, pre-Google, you know. So I was, you know, yeah. uh, doing things by mail and by telephone call, doing this research into this this double murder. 
And the story that unfolded was really fascinating. And basically it starts in Dust Bowl, Oklahoma in 1934, uh, where a homeless man and his 13-year-old daughter are camping by the side of the road, and they're befriended by a, a drifter from Texas who'd just been released from prison. His name was Clint Palmer. And he uh, befriends the father and daughter, lures them down to Texas where he kills the father and kidnaps the daughter. And so he takes this 13-year-old girl on a one-year crime and killing spree across the American Southwest. It includes the double murder that happens in Johns Canyon, Utah, and ends up back in Texas where he's tried. He's caught and convicted of the murder of the girl's father. Um, the novel I wrote is called Hard Twisted. Again, very dark, very gritty, but it's told from the point of view of the 13-year-old girl who mm-hmm. uh, is is kidnapped by this man, is raped, uh, winds up having his baby, which dies, um, and it's a classic Stockholm Syndrome situation where she's with him the whole time. She has plenty of opportunities to escape, but but you know, but she's with him all the way until the point that they're captured. And at that point, she becomes a star witness against him in the trial. So that was the story, and that was the second novel, Heart Twisted. Gosh, fantastic. I can just picture that moment you're talking about when you pick up... First of all, the silence when snow starts to fall. It's often eerie. And then having the thunder. Man, you must have thought you are having a visitation. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, the place where we were at... Um, they, they were living in a, what's called a dugout. Now, a dugout was like a crude structure that, that back in the 1930s, uh, people would, would, you know, desperate people would live in. And it basically consists of a trench in the ground with just a, a roof over it. Uh, and this guy, 36-year-old Clint Palmer, and his now 14-year-old captive, uh, Lottie Garrett, were living in this dugout in Johns Canyon in the bitter cold, She'd just given birth and just lost her, her baby. It was just a horrific situation. And I was mm-hmm. there. I saw the dugout is still there. I could see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, my, this is a story somebody needs to tell. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's how I felt about it. Mm-hmm. That's great. Look, we are starting to come to the end of our time together. So just turning, looking at your wider career away from the individual books, is there one thing that you've done perhaps more than any other that you'd credit with the secret of your success so far? I mean, being published by two major publishers and, and now Tory House as well, um, and that you've won lots of awards and things. What have you done right, do you think, and is there anything you'd change? Gosh, uh, what would I change? I, I can't say that I'd change very much. Uh, like I say, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I think there are a lot of writers out there with probably more talent than me who, who haven't had the break and haven't gotten the agent and haven't gotten published. Um, in terms of what I did right, I, I think the best thing I did as a writer was that I brought to the process of writing the same sort of discipline that I brought to the practice of law. Mm. Uh, my line is that I only write when I'm inspired, but I make it a point to be inspired every morning at 9 o'clock. Right? <laughs> so so I, 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 I'm very regimented. I get up, I, I, you know, I have my breakfast, I sit down at the computer, I work until lunchtime, um, Usually I come back in the afternoon and spend an hour or so polishing up what I wrote that morning. And I try to do that while I'm writing a book. I try to do that seven days a week. So I really um, bring a certain discipline to the process. Uh, I'm not a fast writer, uh, but I've managed since I began writing in 2006, I've managed to write 
seven, and now I'm working on my eighth uh, book. Um, and I, what I, you know, I credit um, that, that discipline that I brought to the process. So, my advice to young writers: um, you may not have the luxury of writing full time. You may have to work a job or have children or what, you know, or whatnot. Um, but the best thing you can do is is to carve out uh, time every day uh, to work on your book. And, and discipline yourself to protect that time uh, vigorously. And um, I think that's the key to success. It's, it's time actually spent in the chair working. And, and that's my advice to aspiring authors. Fantastic. And I'm interested how you balance the writing and the research. Do you do all the research first, or do you start writing and then feed the research into where it's relevant? How do you approach the balance there? Yeah, you know, the McTaggart books don't really require any research because, like I say, I'm just yeah, writing yeah, it's my yeah. life. But um, the uh, the other books all involve quite a bit of research. And in, in both the case of Hard Twisted and Tom and Luck, I did the research in advance. In the case of uh, Hard Twisted, for a number of years, in the case of Tom and Lucky, I did a you know like a six-month crash course reading everything that's ever been written about Lucky Luciana or about Dewey or about the trial. So... Um, I, I did the research on the front end for most of those. I'm actually working on an interesting project right now. Uh, the University of New Mexico Press asked me if I would like to write a book for their Real West, R-E-E-L West, series of books about classic American Western films. So they're hiring a bunch of Western writers to uh, write one book about one film. And they asked if I'd like to participate. I said sure. So I'm I'm actually writing, I'm going to be I'm writing what will be the definitive book about uh, the film Blazing Saddles. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so so I'm in the process now of both writing and researching at the same time, trying to read everything that's ever been written about the movie uh, while writing a book about the movie. So I'm I'm sort of doing both at the same time right now, but it's quite research intensive. And did you choose the movie, or did they tell you what one they wanted you to no, do? No, they, they, they said which which movie would you like to do, and I, I chose uh, uh, Blazing Saddles in part because, as I mentioned before, I, I represented Richard Pryor, who, you know, who died oh, in yeah. two thousand five. Yeah. But he was he co-wrote co-wrote the screenplay with uh, Mel Brooks, uh, so I knew I had an entree to his widow and and maybe to some information that other people might not have. So Fantastic. that was my choice. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, this is the joys of binge reading. And so turning to Chuck as reader, what do you like to binge read? I imagine you do a lot of very intense and serious nonfiction reading as well. But what are your tastes in the more entertainment genre area? Yeah, you know, I, in addition to the writing that I do uh, for the books, I also uh, am a book critic for my local newspaper. So I, oh. I, publish, I publish six uh, book reviews a year. Uh, and for those books, I, I generally try to read um, uh, literary fiction or upmarket commercial fiction uh, that's just coming out. I usually read them in, in galley form. Um, so I do that. And between the research I'm doing and those, uh, those books that I read for the column, I don't, and, and I belong to a book group also, um, I don't have a, a, a whole lot of time for pleasure reading. So my, my guilty pleasure when I do have time to pleasure read is I like to read crime fiction. I like to read mystery fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I read people like uh, Philip Kerr or, or, or Joe Nesbo or 
Michael Connolly or Nelson DeMille, those those sorts of crime writers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And the commercial fiction that you're doing, have you come across a couple recently that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah. um, People ask me this all the time. The best book I read, honestly, in the last um, maybe 10 years uh, is A Gentleman in Moscow by uh, Amor Tolls. I thought that book was fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't had yeah. a chance to read that, I highly recommend it. I thought that was great. Look, it is sitting on my bedside table, unread. Well, it's been there for months because of that thing. <laughs> put, put it at <laughs> the top of the TBR list. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you've mentioned Blazing Saddles, but what else is, is on your agenda for the next 12 months for Chuck the Writer? Oh, I've got some interesting things. So I've got this book. I, I, I'm, I, I really just started writing it. That's the Blazing Saddles book, but that's due to the publisher by the end of July. So it's really a crash project. Um, at the same time, I have a TV show that I'm trying to develop with a, 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 a director. Uh, in fact, yesterday we were on the phone with uh, Amblin Entertainment, which is Steven Spielberg's uh, company, uh, about maybe trying to get them to partner with us. So that's kind of interesting, and if that comes through, that'll be fascinating. Um, I, I guess you can't tell us anything about that, even what type of show it oh, is. Oh, yeah, it, it's, I can tell you, it, it's, a, it's a contemporary Western, basically. It, oh, it, fantastic. A, yeah, so, um, so there's that. And um, I'm doing something else that's sort of new to me. I'm dabbling a little bit in songwriting with a friend of mine who's a musician, uh, I've known him for 50 years. He called me up and said, do you, um, do you ever write song lyrics? And I said, you know, I never have, John, but I'd, I'd be willing to give it a try. So I've written four songs for him, and he's in the process of recording them as we speak, and, uh, and we'll see what comes of that. Fantastic. Now, I just have to ask with the songwriting, um, what, what um, sort of type of songs are they? Who are your favorite singers <laughs> in, that, in that area? <laughs> Well, what inspired me to even say yes to him was the fact that I just watched the Ken Burns series on country music. I don't know if you oh. saw that or not, but it's no, really quite No, I haven't fa- seen that, no. Oh, it's fabulous. It's the whole history of American country music. And uh, so I had that in mind. So I, I wrote one country song for him. Uh, the other songs are more contemporary love song type things. Um, uh, and the idea is he'll 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 record them. And we'll see if we can get uh, you know some some notable people to perform them. That's that's the goal. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a, again, it's a long shot. It's like the TV thing is a long shot. You know, it's all you know, it's all speculative. A lot of it's just dumb luck. So we'll see what happens. Well, it sounds like a, you're having a lot of fun anyway. So certainly that change you made after 25 years, there's no looking back. You definitely made the right choice. I think. Did you? Uh, I I can't complain. <laughs> That's great. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chuck. It's been great talking, and um, we'll look out for that TV show with interest. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Jenny. It's been my pleasure, and, and thank you for helping pr- promote the written word. That's great. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.